there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. The premiere party was invite only. This wasn't a night for publicity, for reporters, for reviews. For three years, writer Bryce Zabel had developed his vision for TV. Dark Skies, a show about the government agents at the center of an alien conspiracy. Tonight, his hard work paid off. He and his family, selected friends, and the crew all gathered to watch the first episode. The mood was festive, everyone sporting cheesy, fake government badges in homage to the show. Before the lights went down and the episode began, Zabel noticed a strange man, someone he didn't recognize, someone not wearing one of the funny badges they'd provided to the guests. He approached the stranger, who immediately complimented Zabel on the first episode. Zabel was confused. The screening hadn't started yet. Only the crew had seen the show. And this guy wasn't part of his crew. But the man continued. He not only liked the first episode, he was impressed by the follow-up installments that he'd seen. In particular, he thought the show had done an impressive job with its alien stories. Still, the man noted there were a few changes he would have made. Then he made his offer. If Zabel wanted, he had some ideas to improve the show. And, the mysterious, suited man said, he had some top-level knowledge that could help make Zabel's little alien show a lot more accurate. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial, a ParCast original. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered thousands, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. You can find all episodes of Extraterrestrial and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Extraterrestrial for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Extraterrestrial in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second episode on Hollywood and UFOs. 
Throughout the 1950s and 60s, a slew of schlocky sci-fi movies explored the possibilities of alien life in our universe. But film historian and ufologist Bruce Rux believes that these films were part of a government effort to discredit alien encounter stories to the public. Combining shoddy production values with supposedly true extraterrestrial encounters, these films made the idea of life in outer space look patently ridiculous. Last week, we explored the radio programs and films of the mid-20th century, charting the evolution from cheesy B-movies to high-budget, earnest explorations of alien encounters, like Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. This week, we'll follow Hollywood into the 80s as films became more combative toward aliens, perhaps driven by the government's own shifting attitudes toward the problem of extraterrestrial visits. Then, we'll fast forward and attempt to determine whether the government is meddling in Hollywood movies to this very day. Finally, we'll break down Rux's theories and see how they fare on the believability scale. In 1938, Orson Welles terrified the country with an alarming broadcast. Wait a minute, something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! The whole field's caught up by the woods. The fires, the, the gas tank, tanks for the automobiles. Spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. It proved to be a hoax, a Halloween Eve prank gone awry. But the experience trained audiences to be wary of all future UFO reports, even credible ones coming from their radio set. At least that's how the ufologist and film historian Bruce Ruck sees it. In the following decades, movies and TV shows about alien life blossomed, many of them made cheaply and badly by producers like Roger Corman. In his book, Hollywood vs. the Aliens, Bruce Rux claims that this was actually a government-sponsored conspiracy meant to trick the public into perceiving aliens as made-up nonsense. But as the decades wore on, Hollywood's approach took a turn. Consulting with government scientist J. Allen Hynek, Steven Spielberg directed 1977's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Its realistic approach made extraterrestrials both plausible and non-threatening. Rux chalks this up to then-President Jimmy Carter's positive attitude toward the aliens. He wanted the public to make peace with the aliens. In the 80s, however, film depictions of UFOs grew combative. In the real world, the U.S. and Soviet governments were at loggerheads, with the Cold War threatening to heat up anew. And movies reflected these increased tensions. Maybe this change happened because filmmakers were drawing from real-life tensions. Or maybe government officials feared that war with alien life forms was inevitable, and they wanted the American public ready and antagonistic for when that day came. For B-movie director Roger Corman, the 80s began not with a bang, but with a whimper. Corman had made his bones by directing the silly, ultra-low-budget sci-fi alien movies of the 50s and 60s, which had brought him unexpected success. 
But by the 80s, audiences were primed to expect better effects, better stories, and more serious approaches to alien lore. His profits were diminishing as the public lost interest in B-movie schlock. But his final efforts are indicative of the changes in how Hollywood movies were handling extraterrestrials. Uncredited, he co-directed 1980's Battle Beyond the Stars, a Star Wars knockoff that presented a militaristic vision of life in outer space. It pitted alien races and humans against each other in deadly conflict. There are, of course, non-alien reasons why movies might have become more combative toward aliens. As mentioned earlier, Cold War tensions with Russia had worsened around the turn of the decade. Films like Battle Beyond the Stars may have simply been reflecting these tensions. But the problem with this theory is that the 80s weren't necessarily any more violent or chaotic than previous decades. The 60s and 70s had seen the Vietnam War, assassinations of political figures, and civil rights tensions. And of course, the first half of the century was host to two world wars. With this in mind, Rux believes that alien films of the 80s presented extraterrestrials as evil not because of some cultural influence, but because the government was secretly conditioning the public to prepare for a war with beings from outer space. Rux points to Battle Beyond the Stars as the first film in this new agenda. And besides suggesting the direction alien cinema was about to take, it also provided a direct link between Roger Corman and the next generation of filmmakers. Perhaps this was the film where he ceased to be a propaganda agent for the government, with others taking his place. The evidence is flimsy, but Rux seems convinced. Because handling the copious visual effects on the film was a young, ambitious art director with filmmaking aspirations of his own, James Cameron. Cameron impressed Corman with his detailed model work and talent for stretching a budget. At one point, he designed a spaceship hallway out of painted McDonald's breakfast trays. Soon, Cameron was brought on to direct one of Corman's B-horror movies and from there struck out on his own as a sci-fi director. It was here that Cameron began to put forth the government's new, more pessimistic conception of how alien encounters might go, one perhaps inspired by the increasingly antagonistic encounters they were having with more earthly allies. Or maybe this new attitude was driven by something more otherworldly. Cameron's first big-budget blockbuster was the 1984 film The Terminator. While it doesn't directly deal with aliens, the movie does fit in with Bruce Rux's larger theory. It depicts a battle between futuristic robots and present-day humans. One of Rux's own deeply held theories is that the Roswell aliens, and others from Famous Encounters, were actually robots. This explains their silvery skin and numerous incidents in which they managed to deflect bullets effortlessly. Conveniently, this belief allows Rux to connect any science fiction film about robots to his overarching argument. Rux's hypothesis draws a direct connection between the Terminators of Cameron's film and real alien invaders. But even more relevant is Cameron's follow-up film, 1986's Aliens. 
This was a sequel to the 1979 hit sci-fi classic Alien about a group of blue-collar workers whose spaceship encounters a mysterious life form, which then begins to kill them one by one. The original movie, directed by Ridley Scott, obviously centered on a murderous extraterrestrial. But the real villains of the piece were the corporate overlords who carelessly sent the crew to their deaths with little regard for their lives. In Cameron's follow-up film, things took a turn. The focus was now on a squad of military types sent to eradicate the alien menace which had recently overtaken a space colony. In preparation for the film, the actors underwent training that mimicked real-life marine boot camp, getting physically and mentally in shape for the roles. Once again, Hollywood science fiction dedicated itself to the cause of authenticity, just as Orson Welles had done almost 50 years earlier during his War of the Worlds program. Taking a cue from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, it never made the aliens seem ridiculous. And its special effects were top-notch, as it showed the mayhem, destruction, and violence wrought by the aliens. By using the realism of a film like Close Encounters to show aliens not as friendly, but as murderous and rapidly reproducing, the government persuaded audiences to view extraterrestrials as a foreign, conquering army. Film after film reflected this new dynamic. In 1984's The Last Starfighter, teens put their video game skills to the test by battling a real-life alien menace. In 1987's Predator brought an elite military squadron into contact with an invisible, deadly alien race, forcing them to use guerrilla tactics in order to defeat these outer space killers. Is it possible, as Ruck suggests, that this sudden turn toward violence and military action reflects some shift in the government's own position on alien encounters? If you believe his theory, the government had been aware of intelligent alien life since at least the War of the Worlds broadcast, and presumably longer than that. But previously, their approach had sometimes been to convince audiences that aliens didn't exist, and other times to tell them that aliens were benevolent. Now, visitors from another planet were launching an all-out military assault via the movies. To understand Rux's theory as to why the U.S. government changed its position so suddenly and drastically, we have to look to an obscure 1985 film called Life Force. And we have to understand how that movie predicted a mysterious incident with a pair of Russian satellites, Phobos-1 and Phobos-2, two satellites that allegedly found proof of intelligent alien life. Next, we'll learn about what the Phobos satellites discovered. Now, back to our story. In the 1970s, sci-fi cinema seemed to take a gentler tack to visitors from outer space. Hollywood put aside its monstrous depictions of extraterrestrials and instead imagined more peaceful, childlike, exploration-focused beings. But in the 80s, something shifted. Hollywood movies now focused on literal wars with alien races, on military heroes who bravely faced combat against these bloodthirsty, otherworldly creatures. It wasn't enough that these were scary monsters from outer space. 
Now they were organized, and we had to be as well. Author Bruce Rux believes this was all due to the government's shifting attitude toward real-life aliens. They were using Hollywood filmmakers to spread their propaganda. The 1985 film Life Force, from Poltergeist director Toby Hooper, was based on a book called The Space Vampires. Rux points out some interesting ways the film departed from the book, and in the process, became more accurate to real-life UFO cases. A key point in the film, for example, is that NASA had captured photos of the surface of the moon, photos that seemed to depict a long, cylindrical spaceship. The book features no such plot point, but four years later, the movie would prove eerily prescient. On July 7, 1988, the Soviet Union launched an unmanned space probe from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. Its name was Phobos-1. Its purpose was to study the surface of Mars and one of its moons, Phobos. A week later, they launched a sister probe, Phobos-2, with the same mission, a backup that proved necessary when Phobos-1 unexpectedly lost contact en route to Mars. Phobos-2 reached the Red Planet in January 1989 and began its orbit around Mars, photographing the surface of the planet and its moon. But before long, Soviet controllers began to experience communication difficulties with this probe, too. Soon, they had lost all contact with the probe for no apparent reason, just as with its predecessor. But before it went dark, Phobos-2 managed to transmit a series of images back to ground control. It was the surface of Mars. And on the surface, there was a shadow that nobody could explain. A long, thin oval. It was shaped almost like a saucer. Just like in the movie Life Force, satellite imagery had apparently shown the existence of some UFO flying over a nearby planet. The Russians were unable to regain contact with either Phobos probe. The first failure they were eventually able to explain, a faulty line of code had led the probe to shut itself down. But it was unclear what had led to the breakdown of the second Phobos probe. Rux and many others speculate that Phobos II was on the verge of photographing proof of Martian life. The Phobos incident makes one wonder, could it be that someone involved with the movie Life Force had government connections? Obviously, they couldn't know what Phobos II would capture four years ahead of time. But if someone on the film knew that alien life existed, perhaps exactly this sort of incident seemed inevitable. Rux points out a key connection between Life Force and the government, producer Menachem Golan. Golan didn't have a direct link to the U.S. government, but strangely enough, he was a one-time protege of Roger Corman. Life Force has other allusions to real-life UFO stories and to Corman's own government connections. A major plot development revolves around the use of hypnosis in order to recover lost memories. It brings to mind the spooky government figure William J. Bryan Jr., discussed in our previous episode. Bryan brought his genuine expertise on government hypnosis programs into early Corman productions. 
and memory loss is a frequent feature of abduction stories, as is the power of hypnosis in recovering those memories. Another real-life abduction detail that Life Force gets right is the sexual link between the aliens and the humans. The female alien leader bonds with her male abductees in a way that recalls other abduction stories. Most notably, there's the story of Antonio Villas Boas, a Brazilian farmer who claimed, in 1957, to have been abducted by aliens. On board the ship, he claimed, he had sex with a female alien who then became pregnant. Life Force was clearly drawing from real-life UFO accounts, and at the same time, it was following the 80s Hollywood trend of making the aliens into unambiguous monsters. In this case, outer space vampires. Silly though the film may sound, its prediction of the Phobos II incident is intriguing, whether accidental or intentional. And Ruck suspects that the government's reaction to the incident may have made the movies even more antagonistic toward alien life. In the real world, Vice President Dan Quayle chaired the newly formed National Space Council in 1989 and soon was lobbying Congress to fund new efforts to find intelligent life within our solar system. And in Hollywood, movies and TV shows were continuing and even increasing their aggressive attitudes toward alien life in a trend that would continue throughout the 90s, the way Rux tells it. Stargate, Independence Day, Mars Attacks, these movies and many more all positioned the aliens as antagonists, killers, invaders, and enemies. They used real UFO accounts and tropes, as well as ancient alien theories, to bolster their storytelling. Leaning on credible accounts of alien encounters, the films and movies of the 90s make their cases plausible, right before showing the audience how aliens are bound to destroy us if we don't take drastic action immediately. And it wasn't just movies telling harrowing tales of alien encounters. TV shows like The X-Files also borrowed UFO tropes. But as always, Rux's theories result in a chicken-or-the-egg style dilemma. Were these movies and shows propaganda, anticipating the future? Or were future UFO and abduction stories simply stealing details from movies and television? A prime example of this is the September 1996 NBC sci-fi series Dark Skies, about the U.S. government's attempts to keep the discovery of aliens at Roswell a secret. The main characters are in on the conspiracy and trying to learn more about it at the same time. It was a fun, campy show, driven by a love of science fiction and alien abduction stories on the part of creator Bryce Zabel. But the night of the show's premiere, Zabel reports he had a bizarre, unexplained encounter. Bryce decided to hold a premiere party at his house, inviting some 200 guests and decking the place out with alien and conspiracy gear. Each guest got a faux badge from the Majestic Project, a rumored government program for covering up alien sightings, which featured heavily in the show's mythos. But Bryce was unnerved by the arrival of a suited figure. This wasn't anyone he recognized from production, and he notably wasn't wearing one of the fake badges. Before the show began, the figure revealed that he had already seen the first episode. 
He offered to help the producers improve their already impressively accurate production. Hesitant but intrigued, Bryce agreed to meet them at the Dark Skies production office the following week. In the days that followed, Bryce considered the possibility that it was all simply a prank. But the man had offered details of episodes that hadn't aired yet, ones that wouldn't air for weeks. And he had slipped Bryce a napkin covered in strange symbols that he claimed were of extraterrestrial origin. If it was a prank, the attention to detail was impressive. But Bryce didn't get that sense from the situation. Nobody outside his staff and the network knew what stories their future episodes held. And anyway, what kind of prank ended in a production meeting? A few days later, the group met at NBC Studios in a conference room. Bryce Zabel, his co-producer, Burt Friedman, the mystery man, and two older accomplices. They were from Naval Intelligence, they claimed, and they were eager to help add details to the show. Bryce found their authoritative tone a little condescending. They were treating the producers like hapless fools who had stumbled into the right details by pure chance. At one point, Bryce claims the men produced a small vial and put it on the table in front of them. It appeared to be full of gold. Neither Bryce nor his co-producer could make heads or tails of it. And the government men before them seemed to consider its meaning self-evident. Again, Bryce felt they were being condescending as they refused to explain what significance the vial of gold held in relation to alien life. Finally, the men claiming to be from naval intelligence offered Bryce the chance to learn more. One of them laid it out on the table. There's a ship in Long Beach right now, and we can arrange for you to meet the big guy. But, they cautioned, he couldn't meet this supposed big guy at the ship itself. They would arrange a separate meeting at a nearby cemetery at midnight. Bryce had heard enough. Whatever this was, a prank taken too far, or a real intervention from government officials, he drew the line at mysterious midnight graveside meetings. He declined the men's offer and ended the discussion. He never heard from them again. That's the story Bryce Zabel tells. Maybe it's just a canny bit of marketing, a way to lend authenticity to his own TV show. Maybe it's another example in a long history of the government attempting to use Hollywood as its propaganda arm when it comes to extraterrestrials. It was only a matter of time before someone put the pieces together. Bruce Rux wrote his book, Hollywood versus the Aliens in 1997. He thoroughly documented the productions of several sci-fi films from over the years and analyzed the shift from benevolent to malevolent depictions of extraterrestrials. He hasn't yet published a follow-up to examine how movies and TV since have continued or ended the trend of antagonism toward aliens. Even with stories like Zabel's backing him up, Bruce Rux's theory can sound a little out there. That Hollywood has been intentionally directed by the government to alter its presentation of aliens in accordance with ever-shifting guidelines that reflect any given administration's perspective on the matter. And it's still hard to reconcile some of the evidence. For however many alien antagonist movies there were in the 80s, for example, that decade also brought us 1982's E.T., about a friendly little alien simply trying to make his way home. 
And the 90s brought us Contact, an optimistic vision of human-alien interaction that goes directly against Rux's claim that the cinema had turned against aliens overnight. Isn't it possible that different filmmakers simply had different ideas on how to depict extraterrestrial life? But recent facts might suggest otherwise. New evidence released under the Freedom of Information Act suggests that the United States government has been meddling with Hollywood films since the beginning. Next, we'll see how the government's proven track record in Hollywood makes Bruce Rux's theory more credible. Then, we'll look at the evidence and determine just how likely his claims are. Now, back to our story. Historian and ufologist Bruce Rux has traced a compelling pattern across decades of science fiction and UFO-related media. Starting with Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, he's found example after example of radio plays, movies, and TV shows that seem to be advancing a message about aliens to the public at large. That specific message, according to Rux, has changed over the decades, from convincing audiences that aliens are a concept to be scoffed at, to depicting them as wondrous beings committed to exploration, to showing them as enemy armies determined to destroy us. But his theories all rest on one major claim, that the government has for decades been secretly influencing writers and directors. In order to believe that Rux is right, one has to believe that the U.S. government ordered rewrites of scripts, changed plot points, and directed the themes and attitudes of major Hollywood films and TV shows to advance their own messages. And when you dig into that question even a little bit, you soon realize one thing. Bruce Rux is right. Since 1948, the Pentagon has had a so-called entertainment liaison office. The CIA formed their own version in the 90s. Documents obtained through the Freedom of Information Act show a decades-long dialogue between the U.S. government and Hollywood. As far back as 1911, in fact, the Department of Defense has provided its support to film productions. Supposedly, these departments exist to provide support to filmmakers, to allow them to use military vehicles, for example, or to fact-check scripts that feature government officials and locations. But in practice, something a little more sinister has been going on. According to these documents, the Pentagon had a hand in science fiction films like 2003's Hulk, 1997's Contact, and even installments in the Terminator franchise. Hulk, in particular, underwent rewrites that one source described as pretty radical, all directed by the Department of Defense. And these rewrites clearly aren't just in service to accuracy. In 2007, former CIA lawyer Paul Kelbaugh was quoted as saying, we didn't want Hollywood getting too close to the truth. Kelbaugh later denied the quote, but the journalist who reported it stood by their publication, albeit anonymously. None of this government intervention is explicitly linked to extraterrestrials. Early on, the CIA was mainly concerned with covering up its own existence, 
Much of its work with Hollywood in the 40s and 50s was focused on removing mentions of the agency from dialogue, background signs, and more. Other times, their Hollywood ventures were intended to cover up wrongdoing. A planned film with Marlon Brando, based on a book about the Iran-Contra scandal of the 80s, stalled when a mysterious new company stepped in and outbid Brando for the rights to the source material. That company was, declassified documents reveal, a front for the CIA. But could the CIA and the Pentagon have been covering up aliens as well? It doesn't seem like a huge leap from what they've been caught doing in the past. And they've admitted to deception in that regard too. A New York Times article from 1997 examined a groundbreaking study conducted by CIA historian Gerald K. Haynes. It found that the CIA had lied repeatedly about UFO incidents throughout the 40s and 50s, the same kinds of incidents that inspired so many Hollywood movies. They didn't lie to cover up alien activity, though, at least so they claim. They were protecting top-secret military planes, including ones that could reflect light in ways that resembled some of the bright, shining orbs and other glowing objects that witnesses reported. Of course, that's if one chooses to believe them this time, even as they admit to having lied about the sightings last time. But for all the government's shady activities in the movies over the decades, Rux's theory has a lot of holes in it, too. At times, he falls into the trap of simply listing science fiction movies that have similarities to real-life abduction stories. He dismisses the notion that the movies simply got their ideas from those self-same stories, sometimes rightly because the details of a given case weren't made public until after the film's release. But Roswell was in 1947, and it set off a chain of sightings and UFO stories that shared plenty of similarities. Even if a movie wasn't inspired by one particular sighting, couldn't it have been drawing from the general conversation surrounding aliens and UFOs? If the movies didn't get their ideas from abductees, Rux is also overly confident that the opposite isn't true. He finds it unlikely that every abductee could have seen the same movies and drawn the same salient points to repeat in their own stories. That's fair. But he ignores the influence of pop culture and the possibility that these people could have unknowingly picked up details that they'd heard elsewhere, ones that ultimately could be traced to films. The connection he makes between these filmmakers and the government don't hold up to much scrutiny either. Roger Corman may be the best example of the leaps in logic he made and that accepted completely without further examination. Corman, according to Rux, could have been a CIA agent because he was in a naval training program for two years, then spent a few years globetrotting across Europe. By Corman's own account, he spent this time wandering aimlessly, sometimes helping to smuggle items across European borders and generally doing the find-yourself kind of trip still common among 20-somethings today. To Rux, this story indicates something darker. Moving between countries, making contacts across the European continent, all of this sounds like prime training material for someone being inducted into the intelligence community. And... That's it. That's the extent of proof Rux provides. 
even though he spends the rest of the book alluding to Corman's intelligence background as though it were all but certain. Corman does have a military history, that's for sure, and so did a lot of other filmmakers that Rux focuses on. Could it be a coincidence that all of these former soldiers went into the film industry? In short, yes. Keep in mind, these are films of the 50s and 60s primarily, meaning the United States was just coming out of World War II and later the Korean War. Nearly 20 million men were drafted and fought overseas, then returned home and had to find ways of making a living. The fact that these directors and producers come from a military background seems less like a shady connection and more like a mundane fact of life when you realize the time in which they were working. As for why the movies were so bad, the simplest explanation is that filmmakers like Roger Corman recognized a hunger for this material in their audience. Knowing they could get big turnouts for any monster or alien movie, they spent as little money as possible in order to maximize their return. If the audience was laughing at the movies, well, at least they'd bought a ticket. The evolution of these movies' attitudes toward aliens makes sense given how culture was evolving, especially the more militaristic films of the 80s. With the Cold War heating up, patriotism in the movies was high, even outside the alien flicks discussed here. Movies like Top Gun and Red Dawn epitomize this trend, showcasing American values and celebrating military prowess at a time when tensions with the Soviet Union were at a fever pitch. So science fiction films were likely just following suit, substituting aliens for Soviets and then using tales of outer space warfare as a proxy for the real and frequently apocalyptic-seeming Cold War. For all the common sense and historical context you can apply to Rux's theory, though, little incongruities, unexplained mysteries, and strange events poke through. It's enough to make you wonder. After all, we have hard proof in black and white declassified documents that the CIA and Pentagon interfered in Hollywood productions. We have the reports of the Robertson panel, recently declassified as well, showing that there was a concerted government effort to educate the masses about UFOs. Perhaps this was exactly what they claimed it to be, an effort to reduce false reports and sightings. But again and again, from a government that supposedly doesn't know anything about aliens, we see evidence of powerful figures doing their best to make sure that nobody else believes. To rate the theory on the plausibility scale, we have to keep our minds open to every angle. The unreliability of both sides in this debate makes a determination difficult, but of the two, Bruce Rux and the US government, it's the latter that has the longer, shadier history of deception. We can't fully embrace Rux's theories with all their gaps in logic, but we can't dismiss them either. On the scale of plausibility, we give a 3 out of 10 to the likelihood that the U.S. government altered and influenced Hollywood movies to hide the truth about UFOs. Of course, if the government did hope to throw audiences off the scent by co-opting the movies, they managed to have precisely the opposite effect. 
Aliens are now a staple of the big screen, and arguably films like Close Encounters of the Third Kind and The Day the Earth Stood Still have only increased interest in UFO and abduction stories. The rare experience of seeing a mysterious object hover overhead, bright lights flashing and moving in unearthly patterns, this was once the encounter of a rare lucky few, those on a dark stretch of road alone at night, coming face to face with evidence of intelligent life beyond our imagining. But now, that's an experience anyone can have. And they don't even need to look as high as the stars above them. They just have to raise their eyes to the silver screen before them. Thanks for tuning in to Extraterrestrial. You can find more episodes of Extraterrestrial and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Extraterrestrial for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Extraterrestrial on Spotify, just open the app and type Extraterrestrial in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskin. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Travis Clark. This episode of Extraterrestrial was written by Thomas Dolan Gavitt and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson. <laughs> <laughs>